This is the Oanda Podcast. Brought to you by Jazz FM's Business Breakfast. You're listening to the Oanda Market Insights Podcast, where each week we review the stories that made the business and market headlines. And it was another dramatic week. This House has now spoken and it's of huge constitutional and political significance. It is, I think, unprecedented for this House to find government ministers in contempt. This deal is the best deal to exit the EU that is available or that is going to be available. The idea that there is an option of renegotiating at the 11th hour is simply a delusion. The worst day in almost three years, down by 3.15%, worse in terms of today than it was the day after the EU referendum. And we're joined today by Oanda Senior Market Analyst in London, Craig Earlham. And in Singapore, it's Head of Trading Asia, Stephen Is. Good afternoon, chaps. Good afternoon. How are you guys doing? As I said, it's been an incredible week. We ended the week with uh, global stock markets recovering some of those uh, huge midweek losses. On Thursday, the FTSE suffered its biggest percentage fall since the day after the Brexit referendum. But let's start at the beginning of the week. And what a week it's been. An incredible roller coaster. We had the fallback from the G20 and markets rallied, Steve, didn't they? Yeah, it was pretty interesting. Like we have really been put through a bizarre rinse cycle this week. Um, the pent up euphoria that was generated from the G20. Listen, we all knew something was going to snap, but we were enjoying the ride while it had only to have it basically 12 hours later after President Trump tweeted that there was a tariff reduction coming on U.S. automobiles into China that confused even his own advisors because they couldn't answer the press questions on that tweet. And then the market started to second guess what was coming and the market started to reverse all that positivity and risk aversion reared its ugly head once again. But the strange thing is that uh, tweet from Trump seems like such a long time ago already. It's almost like he's got a, got away with it, Craig. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I'm saying this week in, week out, right? I'm completely exhausted by this week. It has, as Steve said, it's been a complete roller coaster. We started off with uh, appearing such uh, such positivity. I think one of the interesting things from the start of the week was actually that it, it did seem like quite a positive meeting as, as far as it could go. Uh, however, the one of the areas where I do... In a way, you think the think the, the the media has reported this in in a in a slightly one sided manner potentially is that no one was saying at the start of the week that yes, do you know what we've got a trade deal with China? There's a there's something on the table. We're going to move away from tariffs. Blah blah blah. They talked about a ninety day period where talks are going to happen. That's about as positive as that meeting was ever likely to go. And it is a positive step forward. Whether anything comes from that 90-day meeting is irrelevant. But straight away, the media was trying to pick apart the differences in the statements and try to suggest that both sides were on different sides of the argument, that neither were quite as aligned as they were trying to let on. I think we should be focusing more so on the fact that these discussions did actually yield something positive, a 90-day delay in tariff being imposed that could lead to another truce between the two countries. Maybe the next one's six months. Maybe the next one's 12 months. Maybe the next one actually leads to tariffs being removed. Yes, there are differences in the, in the technical language and different officials have said different things, but I think this is a step forward in something that was desperately crying out for a step forward because prior to this, all we've seen is more and more tariffs slapped on and more hard talk on Twitter. But I'm surprised you can trust yourself in a sense, uh, Craig, because you just said 
that different people are saying different things. So yes, there is some positivity if you look for it. But Steve, mm-hmm. are you are you actually really that um, convinced by anything anybody says? How can we trust what Craig is saying in a sense that there is some positivity? Because it could actually switch uh, to another dilemma very very shortly. I think we're in a state of total confusion. Um, And I think Craig alluded to some parts of the press over-exaggerating things. But I also boil it down to guys on my side of the equation, too, where we've tended to exaggerate, take the most exaggerated position uh, on the markets at all times. Like it's either being total risk off, total risk on, total risk off, total risk on. And then when you laminate that, with um, a clear-cut observed dovish shift from major central banks, it's the wrong time of year for all this to be happening because liquidity is low. So when you combine all these factors together, it sort of makes for a chaotic situation. You know, in the sense, when I keep on driving back to liquidity, it's it's a real problem. Like once you get trapped in these positions and the market's going negative, you can never find an exit to get out. It's always so far away and constantly moving away. If you don't make that decision right away, you're going to take a significant loss. So I think this is why you're seeing markets being so reactive to headline risk. Simply the time of year, simply all the usual narratives that have been driving markets for the past four months. Now we're dealing with a possible dovish shift from the Fed. So it's confusing the market, um, You know, trying to interpret what the Feds are telling us. And this is quite significant because during a rate hike cycle, um, when we have a pause, especially from the Federal Reserve Board, it doesn't actually send the best signals to markets. It, it raises sort of a red flag to me in the sense that there is a, a, a pending slowdown happening. Now, that could be diluted in the sense that perhaps they're holding back a little bit here because they're more concerned about global economies and equity markets and what have you. But I think the early warning signals that were offered up from the feds about three weeks ago were suggesting that they could see a possible slowdown in the U.S. economy in 2019. So when you can wrap that whole landscape up with global growth slowing, that we know. We see that happening in Australia. We see that happening in the EU. We definitely see it happening in China. Now, if you add the U.S. markets, which arguably have been holding the weight of the world on their shoulders for the last nine months, I think we're heading into some weaker times in equity markets. I think this is what the markets are reading, but I think these views are getting a little bit exaggerated because of liquidity. Yeah, I think uh, I think the, the your point on the liquidity side of things is extremely important as well. And when we throw into the mix the fact that we had that uh, unscheduled market holiday in the middle of the week, uh, the day of mourning for President Bush uh, in the US, I think that only exacerbated the moves on Tuesday as well. Uh, and also there's the other fact as well that we live in this post-Brexit world where you're not allowed to have a balanced view on everything. You've either got to love Trump or hate Trump. You've either got to love Brexit or hate Brexit. You've either got to uh, think the market's going 20% higher or you've got to th- or you think it's got to be- we're in recession. And that doesn't, I don't think, help the moves that we're seeing in the markets right now either. Just when we thought it was safe to get back out of the, uh, the duvet, investors took fright on Thursday This is another thing we didn't see coming when it emerged that the chief financial officer in Chinese uh, telecoms giant uh, Huawei had been arrested at the rest uh, at the request of uh, the United States. This is uh, Meng Wanzhou, 
and uh, she faces extradition over allegations uh, that the uh, firm broke US sanctions against Iran. It is an extraordinary turn of events, isn't it, Steve? Very significant. Um, we know that the U.S. has been exerting pressure on a number of uh, smartphone technology vendors from China, um, all wrapped around in this uh, espionage, hybrid, cyberspace espionage. Um, so they've been looking for excuses. I think this opened the door um, to escalate. I think the next battleground um, on trade war is going to be around technology, especially intellectual property rights. And I have this view, it's going to make trade war the tit-for-tat escalation of tariffs look like a game of access and allies. Right now, this is so significant because with the U.S. exerting pressure on their allies to stop uh, selling these products, uh, in other words, the telecom companies around the world, to stop selling these products, um, especially when G5 technology starts to come out, um, it's quite significant. We're seeing compliance in Australia. We're seeing definite compliance in New Zealand, uh, and we're probably going to see more compliance wherever there's military bases, U.S. military bases located, and that'll probably spread out um, within those surroundings. So, yeah, given the fact that uh, that company's invested uh, nearly a billion dollars in technology into the G5 sector, plus earmarked another close to another billion uh, investment, quite significant for that company. And I think this is why we saw the markets react uh, quite negatively. But if we look back when the U.S. actually um, started the process of suggesting allies stop buying these products, we had a limit down on roughly about 100 technology stocks in China, which all dropped 10%. That's the limit down. So, yeah, um, it's just quite a bearish setup for technology firms in, uh, in China. It certainly suggests that the wall of worry um, around China is certainly as immense as the Great Wall of China itself right now. So I think we're, we're, we're in for some troubling times in that sector over the next few months. Craig, can you explain to the listeners uh, why markets uh, fell so sharply because uh, of what happened in this case? Obviously, uh, there are fears now that uh, a sort of ceasefire in in the trade war agreed between Trump and uh, and Xi at the G20 uh, is not the breakthrough the market had originally thought. And this has certainly uh, exacerbated that. Um, But such a fall, more than uh, 3%, uh, was quite beguiling wasn't it well i think it was just a stark reminder that this 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 negotiation this relationship isn't particularly straightforward uh we have to remember that steve's just alluded to a lot of the issues that this creates with regards to huawei and with regards to the tech sector particularly the chinese tech sector the one uh, and companies that want to do want to expand abroad and the suspicion that's naturally going to be raised around them and the impact that that can have uh, on their expansion plans but it's about how it, it's also about the impact that it has on the trade talks between the two countries because we we can't underestimate just how important uh, a company huawei is uh, in china so the fact that you've got trump leading the efforts to try uh, and uh, and uh, and blunt its its attempts to uh, globalize itself uh, and push onto the global stage this 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 is not going to help these trade talks because then all of a sudden this starts to raise questions uh, around the ultimate motive behind the desire to do this because this isn't the first Chinese company as well that Trump has gone after uh, and that the US has gone after. It starts to raise suspicions about what the ultimate motives for this is. Is it actual protection? Is it a lack of trust? Which obviously in this day and age, uh, in this world that we live in right now, is not conducive with a company expanding abroad? Or is it a case that the US and Trump in particular feels threatened 
by China and therefore any attempts it makes to move its way onto the global stage to increase its influence everywhere, to increase its presence, is going to be met with objection and with a forceful uh, pushback from the Trump administration. Steve, do you think that markets are as unhappy with uh, Donald Trump about uh, this decision as they might be? Because, you know, something had to be done, didn't there, about so-called espionage? It's big. I mean, I think this is where the whole kit and caboodle started when the U.S. uh, opened up Section 301 of the Trade Act, and that's dealing with intellectual property rights. I think um, the U.S. has been in denial for a number of years. Simply, you know, there's just a lot of very bright mainland Chinese engineers studying in the U.S., taking jobs in the U.S., uh, leaving those U.S. jobs and bringing that technology back home and opening up internet companies. So well, Trump, Trump's doing the right thing then? I believe he is. Uh, but, um, you know, is he doing it the most diplomatic way? Uh, is there such and the a most thing friendly, anymore? And the most friendly way? Sorry well, to the, the, the argument here is, is he doing it the most friendly way for the markets? Um, I think having these negotiations held in the back door through backroom negotiations is probably wiser than having them settled on Twitter. Um, I think this Twitter account is becoming a beast of its own. And we noticed that, you know, right from day one. Um, but he likes to use it and he really does wield a big stick. And he has huge market influences across the breadth of asset classes. So he's quite destabilizing for markets. My hope now is that we've got somewhat of a semblance of a pal put in play going into uh, the holiday season, that somebody's going to take his mobile phone away from, or at least disable his Twitter account. Um, so we can have some peace and quiet um, heading into the holiday season. He should sign up with O2, really, shouldn't he? <laughs> and that, that might help. Uh, we, we, we've mentioned Iran, obviously, as far, in terms of these uh, US uh, sanctions, and uh, we have news uh, in the last few hours about Iran agreeing a production cut at this uh, OPEC meeting, and that has helped the oil price a bit, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean... Uh, the details of this are, are still emerging as we are sitting here recording, so uh, it, it's hard to know exactly what it entails. The rumours, um, uh, as we were chatting about the, before the show, suggest that the OPEC nations have agreed to cut 800,000 barrels a day uh, and that non-OPEC... <laughs> 400,000 barrels a day. So that would be uh, roughly in line with market expectations, which would uh, appease the markets. I think we've seen an initial rally on oil, and I'm wondering if that's just purely on the back of Iranian participation. But again, at this moment in time, it's not clear as to just how much they are going to participate because initially they objected to being a part of this deal themselves because of the sanctions that have been imposed and the impact that itself is going to have on its oil sector. Uh, but, but ultimately, it, it's all going to the devil's in the detail, as they say. And uh, and assume as soon as we start to see things pour out, um, I'll be very intrigued to see exactly who's going to play what part. And then also, this is something that didn't become a factor last time, but may become a factor now because of the level of disagreement that we have seen from within the group is compliance. Last time, compliance wasn't a problem. If anything, the likes of the Saudis actually over complied and cut output by more than they were actually uh, scheduled to do. Whereas this time, there's been such disagreement from the Russians side from the Iranians as well I worry whether compliance is actually going to be an issue on this t- this time around would you agree with that Steve I'm not going to lose any sleep over it um, <laughs> simply because it's right on market expectations um, I think what we're starting to what we're seeing here is just an unwind of some of the more bearish elements in the markets I don't think uh, I think the bar is quite high for oil prices to move much higher be very surprised uh, WTI gets anywhere north of 55 
uh, on this rally. Um, I think, however, we're looking at um, a longer-term picture, and I think this is an issue uh, given the fact that trade war is probably going to extend well beyond 90 days, and I have a feeling it's going to be continuing on right through the end of 2019. This suggests to me that um, we're going to continue to feel pressure on global uh, supply chains. We're going to see economic slowdown globally because of it. And uh, what this suggests to me is that there's not going to be any increase in demand for oil. Now, if we look at the various producers that are vying for control of the oil space right now, it really looks like oil prices are moving out of the hands of OPEC into the two colossal giants, one um, Russia and the other um, U.S., but more significantly, Putin and Trump. And this is where it becomes an issue in the sense that Donald Trump, there's no hidden agenda here. He wants oil prices lower. He wants pressure off the feds. He wants the interest rates to be held down. You know, the inflationary impact from higher oil prices is quite significant. This can actually shift the Fed's view. Putin, on the other hand, um, is quite happy with oil trading anywhere between 55, Brent between 55 and 60. Uh, they want to pump. They want money in, in their coffers. That's the objective. They have a rel relatively low cost structure in, in Russia. So I think as we emerge in 2019, we're going to see a dominance of a triumvirate here of um, Saudi Arabia, um, Russia and the U.S., the three largest producers controlling oil markets, and OPEC will be sidelined, and the OPEC, smaller OPEC uh, producers will be basically relegated to the peanut gallery. To get used to the brave new world of oil, I think it's, I think the markets are completely shifting, and I think this will continue to develop over the next year or two. The other thing we can't overlook as well is the fact that Qatar withdrew from OPEC uh, this week as well, which was a, which is an announcement that came out of the blue. Worth noting that I think they're the 12th largest member of OPEC. They pump around half a million barrels a day, so it's not hugely significant. But it does strike right at the heart of the geopolitical uh, side of the uh, of this OPEC discussion, which people haven't focused too, for, so, too much on. They very much focus on the economic side. We have to move on, fellas. Um... I want to talk to you about yield curve inversion. I know how much you like talking about things like this. Uh, it's, it's regarded as one of the it's most... It's a wonderful topic, it, it, isn't it? It, yeah. it is, and a lot of people have never heard it before this week, but uh, it, it's worth talking about. It is uh, certainly regarded as one of the ways to predict a future recession, and uh, I think Wall Street is watching nervously. Uh, it is... Um, I, I have to admit, I, I did not know about yield, uh, yield curve inversion before this week. It's the I wish I didn't, to be honest. <laughs> it's the situation where yields uh, are higher for a short-dated bond than a long-dated bond, and that yeah. is happening at the moment. So, uh, QED, a recession is on its way, apparently, Steve. Not at all. Um, markets get really embroiled in some crazy discussions, um, and they look at past history and what history did in the past, and they try to bring that forward. Look at the U.S. economy is not struggling, okay, by any shape, by any means. What's happened, again, we're looking at these confluence of crazy markets being overly affected by um, a sagging global growth narrative, a shifting Fed, a lot of uncertainty in the bond markets, positioning in the bond markets. Obviously, the Feds have said to them, to the market, listen, we're going to keep hiking in December. And the bar is relatively high um, for them to come off the March hike. But what they're suggesting is that perhaps as we move towards the end of 2019, we could still, we could possibly come off. Now, 
on an exaggerated play of that, that keeps the short dated uh, two year bonds relatively steep because they are more sensitive to Fed to um, to uh, signals around the Fed fund rate. Whereas this, the longer end of the curve, say the fives, for instance, they start to factor in uh, forward guidance or what the economy would anticipate down the road. Look. There's no clear sign that the U.S. economy is tanking, okay? There is really no convincing sign that we're running into a global recession. What the market and what the data is suggesting, we're having an economic slowdown. Now, can those be reversed? Of course they can be reversed. We've seen it happen before. We've seen um, central banks adopt a very dovish narrative. And I'm convinced right now with the Fed's lead here, I think we're going to have a concerted effort by global central banks to try to tame this beast by putting more cash back in play again. In other words, keeping interest rates quite low. I'm pretty sure the ECB next week are going to suggest a continuation of, uh, of easy money policy. Obviously, the RBA has signaled no rate hike. Well, I guess until 2021 now. And I wouldn't be surprised to see the PBOC now, given the recent actions in the markets, to start actually influencing monetary policy quite aggressively. So, yeah, you know, we're going to there's going to be a foot in place by the central banks. They're going to bring this thing under control. And if we factor in um, the PBOC, uh, Chinese central banks work just quite significant. So, you know, let's not give up on the economy right now. Let's not get too wound up about these uh, market market events. It's not a doom and gloom scenario. I don't think we're going to hit a doom and gloom scenario anytime soon. Yeah, and I think, um, I mean, for those of, for those people who are listening who don't understand yield curve inversions, I guess the best way I can explain it is someone saying to you, if you lend me this money for two years, I will give you 3% interest on your earnings. But if you lend it me for five years, I'll only give you two. Uh, and immediately, you, that would raise a few eyebrows because you're thinking, well, actually, for that pre, for that longer term, I actually want a premium. I don't want a discount. So that's that, that's the, what we've got in play here. And as Steve's alluded to, that means that what people are effectively pricing in is interest rate cuts. And people tend to associate interest rate cuts in the foreseeable future as signs of a potential recession. But I'm very much with Steve, and I think the market is completely overplayed this. I think this, this is a case of people writing stories day in day out and when they see something like this then all of a sudden these these stories they do just blow up and they do become something that's not necessarily there and uh, it's also a reflection as well as the fact that we are getting towards the top end of the interest rate cycle the people were expecting the neutral rate between to be between somewhere between three to three and a half percent that's the interest rate by which the fed is no is not providing support for the economy but it's also not restricting it either uh, and uh, so we're approaching that level so naturally things will start to peter out at that point that brings us back now to things like the jobs report today which was a decent jobs report by not by considering where we are but it was 155,000 i think jobs created that's not too bad when you're at 3.7 percent unemployment uh, uh, and so we, we're seeing decent enough figures here for the economy to continue yes it will slow down next year because we've got the fading impact of the economic stimulus but who here is telling me that two and a half percent growth in the u.s is therefore something to worry about for me it's not those jobs numbers though were well below last month's figures possibly unsurprisingly and but below economists forecasts uh, just to give you a bit of detail 155,000 added in uh, November. It was a quarter of a million jobs in October. And uh, economies had expect about 200,000. So um, the record-breaking uh, streak of job creation uh, appears to be slowing, doesn't it, Steve? Yeah, well, this is the fact. Um, and the thing is, if you're uh, an observer of this economic data, you know that a one-off uh, event is not a convincing enough number. 
Um, so we have to look at it, the broader uh, scheme and the broader scale. However, one of the key metrics that the that the feds do f focus on is the wage wage component slid a little bit. That's anti-inflationary. It doesn't play out well in the syndrome that wages are going higher. That's a signal that the feds don't like. So I'm almost convinced um, there was something uh, going on in, in, in the markets uh, this morning, um, or sorry, the markets over the past couple of weeks that the feds picked up on um, in their data. And I think this is why we've seen this sort of uh, dovish retort coming out of them. You know, these things are pretty fine-tuned. These metrics that they're gauging on are, are really, really, really fine-tuned. So, um, yeah, um, it's interesting. We've had such a quick pivot, but I think the pivot's necessary. I think there is evidence of global growth slowdown globally. Uh, it could emerge in the U.S. So, like any part, any sensible central bank, they just want to get ahead of it. They're saying, why we should, why should we be putting interest rates up when we don't think they're warranted to put up? This is not because of Donald Trump. This is because of the data that they're reading. Yeah, to be honest, I think this was actually the Goldilocks report that the market really wanted. We've got mod, mod, we've still got, we've got good job creation that's not fantastic. We've got, got wage growth, which was in line with last month, so it's not accelerated. This gives the Fed the opportunity now in two weeks' time to come out and say, do you know what? We are going to raise interest rates. But you know what? Maybe next year we're just going to do it twice more. Maybe even once. We'll see how it goes. But it gives them that the opportunity to adjust their forecast without it looking necessarily like it's uh, coming from the Trump pressure, which you alluded to, which I'm very much in agreement. I don't think it's got anything to do with that. OK, we have to uh, leave the, the jobs report there because I do want to pitch in a word or two about your favourite subject. Now, it's not cryptocurrency, Craig. It's Brexit, of course. Yeah, um, and everyone's favourite. Everyone's favourite, yes. Uh, this... Uh, Extraordinary story continues, and um, surely markets have priced in a defeat for a Mrs May's government on Tuesday. But what happens next is the big question. Well, what happens next could be a number of different things. I think initially what you're going to see is then there's going to have to be a discussion about what they go back to the European Union asking for um, uh, and whether they ask for uh, some terms of some backstop to be entered, which allows the UK under certain conditions to exit unilaterally. Then it's down to the EU to try and either decide, do we call the UK's bluff uh, and say, no, this is our final deal, take it or leave it. And if no deal's the alternative, then so be it. Or does the EU say, actually, no deal, puts a hard border on Northern Ireland anyway, so we have to offer this. Um, so I personally think the EU might try to call our bluff and see what Parliament goes for. And then if Parliament rejects it again, then we start to see some last minute salvaging. But I don't even know if it will get that far, because I think if the, if the vote falls next week, as we fully expect it to, uh, because there just doesn't seem to be any support for that backstop arrangement. And then there's the discussions held. I think the first thing that we probably see is going to be the uh, the growing support for a vote of no confidence in Theresa May. I think the DUP will very much uh, go against Theresa May on this aspect because they effectively exist to, to keep the union together and this backstop deal doesn't promise that. So I actually think the vote of no confidence is something that they, they would consider backing, uh, which if that passes... Uh, that 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 then creates a window by which Theresa May and the government has an opportunity as as three weeks I think it is to try and form a new government which I think they would struggle to do. There is even the potential I think then for Jeremy Corbyn to try and find a government form a government which may not happen. I think then you will see a leadership challenge very clearly. The forty eight letters will very much arrive on that point in order for a new Conservative leader to try. 
try and form a new government, um, potentially appease the DUP and say, I will look after you, I will not accept these terms, which keeps the DUP on board because another vote would have to follow for the actual election to be called. This all sounds very confusing, but this is just one of a number of avenues that lie ahead. This Brexit situation is going to get very, very volatile, and I think the next few weeks is just going to be quite remarkable, and it's going to be something we're going to be talking about for years and years and years to come, because the alternative is it gets to Tuesday and the vote passes and we're all wrong, but who's voting for it at this stage? It seems that everyone's got a reason not to vote for it, and to be honest, if I was very much against this Brexit deal and I was a member of parliament and I knew that if I voted against it and it failed, that in three weeks' time I'd have another chance to vote on it, irrespective of why that failed and what came back, I would vote against it. But if I got told, you've got now, you now today you've got to vote on this and the alternative is no deal Brexit, I may vote differently. And that's why I'm so convinced that this vote fails on Tuesday because there is a second opportunity, worst case scenario. There is, of course, the size of the defeat which matters in terms of this vote. And they're saying that if... Mrs May by, loses by, say, 100, uh, then that could force her resignation. Although, bearing in mind what we've seen from her over the last two and a half years or so, she doesn't look like a quitter. No, she doesn't resign easily, does she? Um, I, I, I've, seen, I've, I've heard all of these things, and to be honest, thinking back to what I've just said, I'm not sure if I've just clarified things or confused things, because I think I've probably confused them, because that is the situation we are actually in right now, whereby there are so many possible outcomes, and that doesn't even delve into the possibility of second referendums and everything like uh, everything else. That's why I think this vote on Tuesday is so interesting, not because of the outcome. I think the outcome seems pretty assured. It's the what immediately follows, because Theresa May is going to be under huge, huge pressure like she's never seen before, uh, and the government is going to be under huge pressure which puts additional pressure on Theresa May for me it's just now a question of does the EU try to keep her in a position and offer her something something that three weeks from Tuesday which I think is the first of January interestingly enough which three weeks from Tuesday is enough to get that over the line. There was the article in there was the the Times report last week that suggested that Ollie Robbins has put together uh, some legal text to offer to the EU in the event of this failing in government, which effectively said if X happens and Y happens and Z happens, then the UK can unilaterally withdraw with X amount of notice and this much, that and the other. That is something that the EU may decide is better than no deal. But that's if the EU decide that the UK is not bluffing. Steve, um, I'm sure you'd like to uh, interrupt this. Uh, <laughs> this ri- Have I cleared everything up for you, Steve? Ri- yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just gonna. I was just gonna be the participant observer. Are you still on awake? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I, think, <laughs> I think Craig has covered. I think Craig has done a very extensive job. Yeah, I think right. where where I'm more concerned about the whole issue here is more, you know, on on a on a human level is the fact that, you know, it's fifty fifty right down the middle here. Uh, and uh, my concern is whatever what what yeah whatever way this is going to go, there's going to be protests. There's going to be all sorts of bad things happening um, throughout the UK if it ever gets the, put through. The strange thing is, if you went with Mrs May's deal, because it is the ultimate compromise that nobody wants, people are never going to be that angry about it. But if you go in a different direction, whether it's right or left, you know, uh, a harder a harder Brexit or a softer Brexit, or no Brexit, then you could have riots on the streets. To be honest, I think one of the only, the only, one of the only solutions to this, from my perspective, which avoids complete unrest, 
is that Theresa May does step aside. If her deal fails in Parliament next Tuesday, then the deal that she's taken 18 months to agree with the EU has not got the support of Parliament. Then I think we do need someone who from the very start, prior to the referendum in 2016, was a Brexiteer, was someone who had a vision, a vision that was supported by the other Brexiteers within the party. And then if they can get a deal from the EU, which they think is better than Theresa May's, which they also think can get through Parliament, then at least you could say that we voted on this and the Parliament supports it and the EU backs it. The problem is that just kicks the can down the road by another six to 12 months. And I'm not sure they come back with anything different. But at least then, when they come back in 12 months' time, there's not this case of, if this happens, there's unrest because of this. If this happens, there's unrest because of that. If they bring something back that Parliament can't get on board with or that the public is very much not on board with, then at least you can say the Remainer who tried to deliver was unsatisfactory and the Brexiteer who tried to deliver was unsatisfactory. At least then you've got an idea of what was on the table. But right now, no matter what happens, if we go for Theresa May's deal or we go for no deal or we go for a second referendum and end in Remain, the Brexiteers, rightfully, to be honest, will always say no one ever put what we promised on the table. What did they promise? And that's another... Well, that, you know, that, that, that's, that, that's, not, that's not for anyone to decide apart from the people... That's that, the, that, that, that is for the people who campaigned and voted to decide. And if they, between them, can't come up with a solution that the EU agrees to and the public and the MPs agree to, then you start to then we can actually discuss the validity of the referendum. But right now we can't. Without wishing to open up this debate even more, because we've been there and done it, but I do not remember, well, very, very few people ever mentioned a customs union or, or even Northern, oh, Northern Ireland. Ireland. Northern oh, Ireland, the yeah. border was never mentioned. Northern more. Ireland, uh, even the single market. No. Uh, they, were, they alluded to it. I, I was alluded saying the other day, it. I know yeah. far, far more, yeah. far, far too much about the single market and yeah. the customs union now than I ever wanted to know. Exactly. Nobody would vote for it. People, but the interesting thing people is... People voted for uh, controls on immigration, mm-hmm. largely. And that is what Mrs May has and I'm going to leave it there. But what I can yes. say, actually, this week, the interesting thing is, bringing yeah. this back to the markets, is that the pound hasn't collapsed yet. Even with everything that's yeah. happened this week, we have seen a it's general downturn. isn't it? It's priced in. Well, you you see, I mean, well, I, I don't know what's priced in at this stage, well, if I'm perfectly honest. No I think, deal isn't priced in. A sort of kick down the, the, kick the can down the road is priced the, the in. The failure moment, on yeah. Tuesday seems to be pretty priced in, but I yeah. think the, the pound's been very much resilient. That suggests to me that even now, even now, and I say the pound is resilient at this time of recording, uh, even now, uh, it suggests to me that traders around the world still look at this situation and go, no matter how bad it's getting, yeah. I still believe a fudge will be found and no deal is averted. And the moment that it gets to the point that no deal no longer looks averted, that's when I think the pound could crash. Before you go, could we have a brief look ahead to next week? Steve, what are you looking for? Well, I'm looking to see how the market uh, plays out uh, on this OPEC deal. Uh, I think because uh, oil prices have such a significant influence across a broad spectrum of asset classes, um, there'll be a lot of currency action that's being played on this right now because oil prices are continuing to march higher. We're seeing significant uh, rallies in the Canadian dollar, uh, the Norwegian krona. And uh, we want to keep an eye on this. Um, We think this also higher oil prices play into the interest rate markets. Um, And yeah, we're going to be keenly interested on that. And of course, we're going to be attuned to any of the headline risks. But ultimately, I think the biggest uh, the biggest uh, risk is going to fall around Brexit. And I think uh, I don't really have to elaborate on 
what Craig mentioned today. I think he covered all bases. Yeah, it was a, a brilliant summation. Um, and to be honest, even if uh, even if you did, I think I've probably sent anyone who was still on the podcast at that point to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're being too hard on yourself, Craig. Uh, yeah, I mean, everything that Steve just said, really. And we've got to remember, come Monday as well, we're nine days away from that Fed meeting in December. Uh, markets are starting to price uh, a rate hike in less and less. When I left at the office earlier on, we were closer to 80% than 90% or 95%, wherever we were a week ago. So people have clearly taken these comments from Jerome Powell uh, last week, uh, uh, over the last week, and uh, the data that we've had today uh, as being a bit of a, a less hawkish sign. So if we start to go into next week and we start to hit Fed interest rate expectations going later in the week uh, towards the 70, 60, 50, then all of a sudden this guaranteed rate hike in December becomes far less of a guarantee. So I think that's going to be a key theme next week as well. The only thing I can say about Brexit, Craig, is it definitely won't be over by Christmas, that's for sure. Theresa May, maybe, though, right? Yeah, as you've, as you've said on many, many occasions, and I do owe you a drink, if you are correct. All right, guys, thanks very much for joining us today. You've been listening to the Oanda Market Insights podcast. Don't forget, uh, we're on iTunes and other podcast platforms. Have a very good week. podcast from the team behind Jazz FM's Business Breakfast, a daily early morning 30-minute briefing for the day ahead. On air from 6am, listen to Jazz FM on DAB, online or just ask Alexa.